Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And today we're talking about Heroes of Might and Magic 3, developed by New World Computing and released for Microsoft Windows way back in 1999. 1999. Let's let that sink in for a moment. That's right, we missed the 20th anniversary by a whole six months or so, but hey, we're going to do the best uh, to give this game the 20th anniversary podcast celebration it deserves, because it has been an important part of our lives for the better part of those 20 years. Oh, that's for sure. A little bit of background is that me and Brian, we grew up very close to each other, probably a five-minute, 10-minute drive, a 20-minute bike ride, and back in our, I don't know young years our teenage years and whatnot we would go over to each other's house and play this game with each other quite a lot we got very good at it um and i think we actually learned to play guitar during the off turns of heroes of Might and magic 3 yeah uh heroes of might and magic 3 you know it's a turn-based sort of 4x strategy game that has just really interesting airtight mechanics and a lot of interesting things you don't really see in the genre these days but as Joss mentioned we have played just a whole lot of this game uh late nights into the evening uh you know trading off turns and uh playing guitar on the off turns and just having a great old time um eventually uh culminating in a grand showdown between two massive armies uh where one person came out victorious and the other came out with smack talk (laughs) it's very true we've had some good smack talk between us but this game has been part of our lives for a very long time i remember after of course after we turned the legal drinking age and not until then did we come up with a drinking game for this that we've played a few times we still Um, run a game together every once in a while yeah uh, it's one of those games that weirdly despite having come out in 1999 uh, maintains its evergreenness at least for us you know maybe it's just finding that uh, sublime mixture of mechanics and uh, the one more turn mentality maybe it's the art which is you know looks dated but weird weirdly unique and sort of fresh it's aged well let's put it that way It has, it has. And I think Ubisoft, the current owners of the Mighty Magic series, they did the remake on Steam, is that right? Yeah, so this game had an interesting sort of path through its existence in terms of uh, the IP. You know, New World Computing initially put it out, then they went under uh, in 2003 when... Uh, they were owned by 3DO, the company which also went bankrupt. But before dissolving, Ubisoft picked that up for a cool mill and continued to produce games in 2003, including Heroes 5, 6, and 7. I've never played them. I refuse to, out of loyalty to this game. <laughs> yeah, Heroes 3 is, is widely considered by most to be the high point of the series. Uh, I can't. I honestly would challenge you to find someone that didn't think that was the case. But, you know, the fact that this series has gotten seven entries shows you that, you know, there's something here mechanically. It's interesting. It's appealing to its base. Uh, and it just continues to be a really fun mixture of 4x rpg turn-based you know fantasy goodness it does have a lot of appeal to it in terms of like the rpg elements the tactical elements but uh you mentioned that there were seven entries in this game series but that's only for this very particular game series um this uh, the 
Heroes of Might and Magic was kind of a branch off of the Might and Magic RPGs of yesteryear. Um, I've never played those myself, but there are a lot of entries in this game, in this lore. Yeah, I think we're up to 11 or 12. Honestly, like, Might and Magic 1 came out in 1986, and I have not so much as played one of them. Those games are a complete and utter mystery to me, but it does not detract from my enjoyment of Heroes of Might and Magic, uh, which, you know, it could be based on almost anything, and it would this, you know, sort of mechanical mixture and uh, flow and cycle that it puts you through turn after turn, I would play it. Oh, absolutely. Let's be very upfront here. The plot of this game, I think I just played through it last year and I already forgot what it is because you don't play this game for the storytelling. There's a little bit of fluff in there, but eh, it's not the most compelling fluff out there. It'll maybe give you some motivation given overarching story that connects the different episodes and the different battles, but not at a hugely compelling level. You don't play it for the story. That's right. Three decades of uh, gorgeous fantasy tapestry woven over the course of dozens of games. And what do we have to say? Eh, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> very true, very true. So, as Brian mentioned, this is a somewhat light take on a 4X game. Uh, You have heroes who wander around this overworld map doing battle with enemy armies and capturing towns and strongholds along the way. Um, A lot besides the battles, which are very tactical, grid-based affairs, um, you also have resource management in your town. You get a certain amount of resources and income each turn, and then you choose how to spend that, recruiting more creatures to your cause, or upgrading them to more powerful versions, or making your towns more beefy. Yeah, that's right. It sort of takes place on three levels, like you said, uh, the overworld, the town, and then finally, uh, which we haven't touched on yet, the battle map. Uh, You use that town that Josh was mentioning to recruit a gigantic variety of uh, fantastical creatures and troops, all plucked directly out of the D&D Monsters Manual, from what I can tell. It's very true. There are a, a very much a grab bag of creatures in there and sometimes they uh, each of the towns you have has a different faction and sometimes which creatures are where makes sense and sometimes it's a little more loose with you know like oh do beholders belong in dungeon world sure do vampires belong with the undead yeah that's fine but other things like hydras live in the swamp well, I guess so. They're they're kind of lizard dragon things, right? And apparently dwarves live in the forest with the elves. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little less so. Um, I but- think what they were going for here is the inclusivity and, you know, these things broadly map onto a, a fantasy archetype, which is pretty instantly readable, right? Like, this is the noble, lawful, pious human faction. This is the inferno devil faction. This is the high tower wizard faction you know you you can glance at it and get a pretty good idea what you're in for right up front and i think that's some of the powerful visual language that this game uses to sort of instantly draw you in 
Yeah, the art in this game is very well done. Um, even playing the non-HD remake from 20 years ago on the not Steam update one, I still was pretty impressed with the graphics. Like, they weren't holding me back at all. Now, some of the other user interface elements definitely are a bit more dated. We've come a long way since those, but when you've played this game as much as me and Brian, you aren't uh, you aren't turned off by the systems you know well already. Yeah, you, you keep mentioning the Steam version, but honestly, to me, the definitive version of this is the Heroes Complete version on GOG, good old games. Uh, the Steam version, sadly, doesn't have the expansions. Uh, this game has two expansions, uh, Armageddon's Blade and Shadow of Death, official expansions, that is. And... Um, Neither of those apparently have source code available to be ported into the Steam HD version, although I did recently see a tweet in my research that shows that uh, they may have found the source code for these, so maybe we can expect an HD port of those as well in the coming years. Oh, that'd be very nice to see along the way. Yeah, um, but, you know, when I'm playing this game, uh, you know, single scenario version, uh, I, you know, like to get those ex extra expansions in there, which add a faction, add a bunch of maps. So I will opt for the, the GOG H or the GOG Heroes 3 complete version rather than the, the Steam HD update. Because as you said, you know, the graphical fidelity update is nominal at best. And honestly, like it could be squares and circles on a screen and the mechanics here to us, uh, I think would, would shine through just because, you know, the visuals are a secondary at this point. Still nice to see, but man, um, I think we've internalized it enough at this point to not need them as much. Ah, probably. I will say one of the nice things about the Steam version, though, is is that it makes the online multiplayer much more easy to set up. Back in 1999, if you were going to play a computer game with somebody who wasn't sitting right next to you, you had to be a goddamn wizard to do it. You had to know the <laughs> arcane language of TCP/IP and UDP and all these other, um, all these other acronyms. That okay, I program computers. I know what these are. And you lived through this era. You know what that's like. But it's definitely not the plug-and-play multiplayer um, using the older version. Yeah, it's uh, sadly a little bit inaccessible to try and start online games uh, with this game. It was then, it is now, uh, at least not without the Steam version. But that's why we always opted for Hot Seat. You know, <laughs> sit next to each other, trade the mouse back and forth. And, uh, you know, the person who's not playing uh, occupies themselves otherwise. Play guitar or talk smack or... Mostly talking smack. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we would make up songs about how terrible the other person's skills at the game were. Yeah, you know, it's, it's always, you got to find some way to uh, urge people along when they're, you know, it's a turn-based game. You can technically take as long as you want, although I think in the competitive scene, they limit the time on turns, which, God, you better. These games can take a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this game does still have a competitive scene, and I think the main reason for that is that they're still playing the games they started back in the aughts. <laughs> it's very possible. Yeah, they have an um, active multiplayer community still, which is not something that every 20-year-old game can say. And they also have a number of mods, I think. Um, I, we talked about this a little bit during the last game we played. We played uh, maybe a month ago in prep for this podcast. And you mentioned that in the Russian community, uh, this is still a very important game. 
Yeah, this game seems to have like an Eastern European and Russian fan base that still is keeping it alive, you know, releasing free unpaid expansions that are totally community generated. Uh, There's two that I saw that I actually kind of want to check out. Uh, Horn of the Abyss is one and In the Wake of the Gods is the other. Um, Evocative names, to say the least, but um, I've heard they add factions, maps, campaigns, uh, and some quality of life updates too, which interests me a great deal. You've always been more for the mods than me. I remember with Skyrim, uh, we talk about what different mods we were using, and I had maybe two, while you and uh, Clint were just listing off all these different, like, better UIs, fix the bugs, solve the problems this game has with usability. (laughs) Hey man, we got 20 years of people playing this and picking it apart to benefit from, why not take advantage of that? Very true, very true. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the finer points of this game's uh, in-game mechanics. Yeah, you know, we mentioned you control a hero, and I think that's really what sets this apart from other turn-based games, and I think it was its sort of main um, innovation that set it apart and really got you invested in your game. Because not only are you building this faction, this kingdom, this army, but you have a hero or multiple heroes that are leading it. And let's just stick with one for the time being, because I think that's how we like to play the game, is uh, make one sort of main army led by a hero that you uh, craft through sort of an RPG-esque level-up system as they go through battles, gaining skills and spells, etc. So the heroes in this game don't directly participate in combat. Um, Well, they can cast spells at the opposing armies, but they never get down in the battlefield and swing the swords themselves. Instead, they have a number of primary stats like offense and defense that get applied, added onto the armies, the units in the army as a bonus, and then they have uh, spells they can cast as well. And then skills like armorer or archery or other things like that that improve the effectiveness of certain tactics. Uh, and the armies are the ones actually duking it out. Your hordes of gargoyles or your flock of dragons or things like that are going after each other and after a while you start to sort of get used to the type of skills that you find to be effective or that you like playing with oh the skills are definitely unbalanced like there's some great skills in there logistics your hero moves farther every turn or like a offense just blank bonus to attack for every troop you have yeah percentage upgrade there's use of skills too like Eagle Eye. Uh, if your opponent casts a spell, you have a percentage chance of learning it. Or Scouting, where you can see farther on the world map. I mean, maybe some of these skills are more useful for scout heroes, but in the way we played, you hogged all the experience for your one main hero and main army to make him as beefy as possible. Yeah, as you sort of learn the ebb and flow of this game, you realize that in order to take out an enemy, the the most effective way that we found to go about it uh, over the course of our our time playing the game was uh, make one hero that's overwhelmingly powerful and use it to sort of cut off your enemy at the head, basically find their top hero, which 
hopefully was weaker than yours, confront him, take him down, and then you've sort of gained yourself the upper hand, and you can slowly but surely fight a war of attrition to uh, take out the rest of their kingdom. It would be interesting to see what the tactics on the competitive level are like, because we've played this game a lot, and I feel we're very good at this game, uh, at least compared to other people who've played this more casually than we have, who have not spent entire months of their lives dedicated to this game. Um, And the way we play it is a very specific way. You try to build your army up as big as it can and get as powerful as it can, so you try to suffer the least amount of casualties on the way to doing so. You're always evaluating, can I take out this monster stack to get to the treasure it's guarding without taking too many casualties myself? Because once your army loses its creatures, it's they come back, but only at the same rate they would have uh, replenished otherwise. Like uh, You still get the same reinforcements each week, whether your army was wiped out or whether your army suffered like no casualties at all. Yeah, uh, you make a good point about, uh, you know, enemy units on the overworld map. Uh, It's something we didn't quite mention yet, but there's a neutral troops out here too that um, I guess if we're putting it in a modern context are kind of like uh, the Dota creep, right? These are sort of lower powered enemies that you gain experience for your main hero on and are often guarding resources that you can use to bolster your kingdom, such as a mine or an artifact that will increase your hero's stats. Another thing the game uses them for is to uh, guard choke points. So maybe there's a couple different sections of the map that might have a few factions each, but the pass between the mountains, so to speak, is guarded by a number of very high-level troops. So you can't really get through to the other side until you're powerful enough to take on these troops. And the game does a great job of withholding information from you because all of the stacks in a descriptor, if you right-click on a given enemy, will be described in a word rather than a number. They'll say, there's a few imps here, or there's a few archangels here. There's lots of crusaders here. There's zounds of monks here. Or there's a legion of skeletons here. And... It's up to you to sort of start to internalize and interpret what that means. You know, few is 1 to 5, lots is 16 to 40, zounds is something like 400, and a legion is 1,000 or more. Uh, so this game, like, requires you to sort of learn its lingo and, you know, take that into account when you're confronting an enemy. And while that's, while that's sort of the basic language you have to learn playing the game, too, that also plays into the risk management, too. Maybe you're fighting a fairly high-level creature with your army, and if there's only 30 of them, then you'll be okay. But if there's 60 of them, if it's twice as big as you thought it was, you're going to be in a lot more trouble. So the higher-level play, which is what I'm going to call what me and Brian have, it's always <laughs> that kind of risk management between... I'm pretty sure I can take this on right now without weakening my army too much. You know, I always thought what we did in Smash Brothers was high-level play, too, and then it started getting invited to Evo, and I realized we were nowhere. Uh, So (laughs) I'm pretty sure I would have a similar realization if I watched an online Heroes 3 match, but, you know, I'm going to live in this nice fantasy where we're uh, top-tier Heroes players out here. We are the top two-tier We're the top two we know. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, uh, you know, a community of you and me uh, and, you know, my cousin and my brothers and your brothers and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But, uh, you know, we should uh, we should get uh, we should get that crew together and play some heroes sometime. That'd be fun. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It would take a couple days, too. 
<laughs> yeah, no kidding. We'll have to get like a, a house or something. A modern <laughs> man party. <laughs> Well, you want to talk a little bit about um, the factions and sort of how they divide themselves down in terms of alignment and might versus magic, because they do a pretty elegant job of giving you a variety of choice. Uh, And there's nine factions in this game, including the expansion one, and they all play fairly uniquely, in my opinion. I think so, too. I mean, there's commonalities between all of them in terms of what the tactics are, but each creature for the factions, they tend to have a special ability, like um, certain ranged units can shoot twice, or dwarves have some magic resistance, so spells don't always work on them. Uh, Gorgons, they paralyze creatures or turn them to stone. And it's worth mentioning that each faction has seven tiers of units that you sort of climb a ladder up as you're developing your town from uh, the lowly pikemen up to the highest uh, archangel in terms of the generic human faction, uh, which sort of follows a you know, pious, angelic route of acquiring power. It's all themes, but really the methods of acquiring power or acquiring power are the same for each town. Um, there's not like every people have different victory conditions or ways they grow power. I mean, even something like StarCraft, which I think it came out around the same time, you had different play styles to Terran and Protoss and Zerg, like different ways they'd expand. Whereas here it's, you find the mines, you collect the mines. Different towns, different factions need different resources in different amounts, but the basic gist of it is the same. Yeah, I think the factions are actually fairly well balanced until you get into super high level play and like us um, (laughs) i feel like i feel like we can still have a fair match no matter what factions each of us choose um there are factions that are banned from competitive play apparently and this surprised me Uh, i asked you to guess which ones they were earlier and you could not do that so apparently they're not that under or that poorly balanced (laughs) they're not maybe valued by us as the pros do so to speak you're saying you're ready to disrupt the pro, see- pro scene with your fortress play? That's right. <laughs> I'd love to see it. Maybe you can win some money. <laughs> I'm sure there's a fat purse waiting for me at the Heroes 3 convention. Yeah, the, the last purse that I'm aware of for this game was a $750 tournament in Russia in 2013. I could cover my airfare if I win. <laughs> no, not even that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. also sort of break down across magic focused versus might focused in terms of are you valuing hitting harder with your troops or being able to cast high level spells 
which is sort of another thing to focus on when you're developing your hero and taking that into account with the faction you're playing as well. With the skills that your hero picks, there's a pretty, uh, a pretty bright line between whether this is a magic skill or this is a might skill. And I guess if you call your game Heroes of Might and Magic, that's a fair play to do that. You might pick a skill that lets you cast fire spells more effectively, or you might pick a skill that lets you siege a castle a little bit better. You, you want to try to focus on one of those branches for your heroes, I think. Like, going in between the two of them is not as effective. Yeah, on top of all of the skills that you have and the stats, you know, offense, defense, spell power, and knowledge slash spell points that you're building up, you also have a couple of intangibles that you can build up with skills or artifacts, uh, morale and luck. And this is where the game's alignment system comes into play. And if it sounds like we're throwing a bunch of systems at you in this discussion, it's because this game has a lot of shit in it. <laughs> and <laughs> mm-hmm. every every turn is like a smorgasbord of trying to figure out what uh, the best move might be, taking into account, uh, you know, 12 dimensions of different things that you could possibly be maximizing for. So if you have high morale, you have a chance of being able to act twice. If you have high luck, you have a chance of your attacks doing double damage. So if you get high morale and high luck, you have a chance of doing about four times as much damage on a given turn. So these are, you know, these little minor stats or seem like minor systems in the game, which can actually make a huge difference. Mm-hmm, for sure. You know, I I feel like that can swing a battle a lot, or it might have you favor a certain artifact or build-out for your hero over another, but I feel like one of the things they tried to do with the morale system uh, was to prevent players from mixing all the powerful creatures from different towns, because your army has higher morale if it's composed of a single town type, and the more types of factions you have mixing in a single army, the lower their morale gets. And the converse of high morale is low morale, where your creature doesn't get to act at all proportionate to a certain degree. Um, But I also feel that this was perhaps not a needed system, because there's not a a lot of times playing a game with you where I would have wanted to throw in three or four different army types in there, because you have your main army that has all the strongest creatures you've been building up from the beginning. Any secondary creatures from a different faction, they're going to be things you conquered later on and started building up there, and you just won't have as many of them. You might be able to get, I don't know, 10 or 11 devils or arch devils, but is that going to be as as powerful as the 700 skeleton stack you have? Yeah, it's a good point that this is something that doesn't come into play often, but when it does, it's super impactful. Like, for example, if you have a group of enemies off the world map join you, because that is an option, sometimes if you roll up on some enemies, they'll be like, "Uh, fuck this, I'm out, you're too powerful. Or they'll say, you are so powerful, we want to join you. And if you pick up an enemy like that, that is not of your alignment, then you can run into this morale issue that you were talking about. And you know, that could be a a big game changer because you can bring this powerful group of, you know, enemies into your encampment for your army, basically, but you're going to have to pay for it in terms of morale, most likely. And of course, no one likes to team up with the undead. So if you have an undead in your party and anything else besides undead, they're getting a morale uh, detriment or penalty in a big way. Newsflash, guys, zombies don't shower and they smell bad. (laughs) 
<laughs> no one likes zombies. Let's talk a little bit more about the overworld map. Uh, it's perhaps a little underrated in terms of how you think about the game, because you play this game, you know the battles are very tactical affairs. Your creatures can move this far, they can attack from this direction. Some of them can counterattack in different ways or different numbers of times per turn. You're taking all that into effect. Obviously, very tactical affair there. Uh, but the overworld map, your heroes are adventuring around, occasionally going on quests, trying to find the hidden treasure, attacking monsters to get at powerful artifacts, and trying to uh, convert the world to your flag's color. Um, I really enjoy the kind of moving around, exploring, going into a new area, and seeing what goodies are available there. Yeah, it can't be undersold how pretty and interesting this overworld map is. It's just sort of like a giant smattering of, you know, different interesting locations that you can have your hero visit uh, like you said from mines to mountains to witches huts to thieves guilds to find out what your enemies are doing like there's just a lot of different things and every every single location or uh, item that you roll up on in the overworld is going to give you a little interesting piece of text and usually some information or resource that will help you in taking over the the world <laughs> for lack of a better word Ah, uh, very true. And I think maybe one of the unobvious things is that I feel like the scenarios in this game, the maps you can choose to play on, that were designed by the game creators, by the developers, are pretty well designed, like good level design with them. There's been a couple times where me and Brian have tried to do a random level generated thing uh which is an option for the game as well and i've found that when we do do the random level it's kind of subpar so maybe i don't know if these levels are excellently designed but they're certainly better than the random stuff that happens otherwise yeah it's very true i mean having the right amount of resources available to you at the start combined with creatures guarding certain access points or uh, empowering areas artifacts or resources really makes a big difference and i think they figured out a pretty good balance in terms of what they should do in terms of level design for a single scenario in this game and uh, even campaigns uh, which i never spent a ton of time with on heroes you know this is probably the one of the only games that I completely eschew the single-player aspect of it for the sort of single-scenario-slash-multiplayer uh, aspect of it. But they design these things in a way that makes them fun, balanced, and interesting visually, uh, which the random maps sometimes look a little bit sloppy in comparison. That's true. They can definitely look a little more sloppy. Well, once you're on that overworld map, how do you win? Kill everything in sight, just like a good fantasy video gamer that you are yeah there are other win conditions that they add in like getting a certain amount of resources or uh, piecing together the grail by visiting a bunch of obelisks and digging it out of the ground and bringing it back to your town but by and large the most common mode of victory in this game in all scenarios and all campaigns is get out there and take over all the castles and kill all the enemy heroes you know basic standard 
fantasy slaughter. Now, I want to talk about the Grail for a little bit, uh, but before I do, I want your honest opinion here. Did you ever like those other win condition scenarios? No, I avoid them like the plague. There you go. <laughs> like the good video gamer you are. <laughs> this is a poor example because if I think about when I play Civ, I have enjoyed games of Civ where I have uh, Civilization, Sid Meier Civilization for the uninitiated. Um, I have enjoyed games where I do culture victories or a space race victory where you advance technologically faster than your opponents. But, um, you know, conquest victories in that game weren't the only way I found of having fun and winning. But in Heroes, conquest is the way to go. Like, that's what you want out of this game. You want to hear the lamentations of their skeletons. (laughs) Hear the zombies wail. (laughs) <laughs> exactly, or the white, the banshee's whale. As it is. <laughs> All right, but let's talk about the Grail for a little bit. Uh, this is a very powerful artifact you can get. Um, You bring it back to your town, you get these huge bonuses for the town, as well as a lot of income, which helps you buy bigger armies. So definitely something you always look for. And how you find it is that you go to these different obelisks. And when you go to an obelisk, there's this jigsaw puzzle that appears on your screen. And different pieces of the puzzle fade to to the map location that represents where the grail is hidden. Uh, once you know where it is, you send your he- a hero over there and they spend a full turn digging. And if they're in the right spot, they find the grail. Otherwise, they wasted a turn and you got to try again in another two days. Yeah, and it's really fun once you do get that grail, bring it back and see what it adds to your town. Sometimes it's a gigantic statue. Sometimes it's an airship floating in the sky. Um, and I'm going to take this opportunity to mention um, the art... You know, we talked about how cool it was in the overworld, but the towns, uh, completely different look and art style, but just as striking. You know, you know what you're looking at here. We're looking at some seriously awesome wizards or some devious warlocks hiding in the depths of a dungeon, and it's incredibly well-crafted. The art, the towns, the soundtrack of every town is very nice and interesting, too. Oh, yeah. Worth mentioning here, as far as setting the table goes, is the soundtrack for this game is great. Um... Maybe it's because we've played it for so long, but, you know, I could hum these tunes in my sleep here. <laughs> Which is weird to say because they're all basically or- orchestral pieces, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> I found this out during some research for the show, but there is an actual orchestra in Warsaw, Poland that plays these songs uh, on a regular basis for gigs, which is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I've got a wedding coming up in November. wonder how much they cost. Well, if you're going to fly an orchestra to Cleveland, Ohio, it might cost a 30 penny. (laughs) So getting back to the grail, the mechanic of having this thing you're looking for and having to search for it, I dig that, but I also feel it could have been done better. The actual digging part of it, it's a lot of, let's be honest, useless kind of time filler. It bumps up how long games take without really increasing the fun of it a little bit i can imagine a few different game mechanics where you find enough obelisks and then you can 
I don't know, go back to your town or go back to some place and find the grail that way without having them dig around until you find the exact location. I get what they're doing here. It's a time tax to get a huge advantage that's going to hopefully pay off in the long haul. It's an investment. You know, I I get what they're doing here, but um, I agree that it's not mechanically fun, which, you know, this is a game. If it's not mechanically fun, find a way to make it. Right, right. Uh, Another thing, you know, if we're going to go into gripes that I have about this game, it's if you're playing an extremely hard scenario, and I've only, you know, I don't run into this often, but when I do, it's uh, definitely a sour note. Uh, If you're playing a very hard scenario, it's hard to tell when you have irrevocably screwed yourself. Uh, This game has a fog of war mechanic that is fairly central to it. You know, seeing enemies go in and out of that fog of war and realizing that they're on your doorstep suddenly is like one of the key tensions of the game. And if you see an enemy roll up on you and you are hopelessly outmatched, uh, you may have just invested five hours into what will be a crushing defeat that you have no way of rectifying. Uh, a lot of games will give you a chance to sort of swing the sk- you know, the, uh, the pendulum back in the other direction, but in my experience, this is one of those games where you generally don't know you're boned until it's far too late. Yeah, if you lose your main army, then you got nothing. You're waiting for someone to come finish you off. That's why we had the strategy of keep your army as intact as possible so it gets as large as possible so you can steamroll whatever comes your way. Yeah, it really is you know, it's there's no elegant way to sort of recover in this game. I think that's something that, you know, I think that's one of the main reasons that turn-based strategies like this haven't gotten as mainstream as they could have. You know, I think, weirdly enough, I think Warcraft 3 stole a lot of this game's thunder because it took this sort of hero mechanic, turned it real-time, and then, of course, Dota came after that and just sort of streamlined it even further. Mm-hmm. And... You know, there's all kinds of swings going on in both of those games, far more than there ever were in a Heroes match, where if your hero dies, you're basically a shit out of luck. Very much so. Very much so. So, Brian, one of the things you talked about when we were playing this game was, with a strategy game, you got to kind of know your build order. I guess for you youngins out there who play Dota and League of Legends all the time, this would be equivalent to kind of like the buy order you have with your items. Uh, But you were talking about if you don't know your game, if you don't know what the build order should be, it's very easy to screw yourself out of that. And that makes the game a little less accessible than some of the more recent titles we have played. Yeah, it's a very good point. Like, uh, I feel like this is one of those games that gets more interesting the longer you play it, which it's an easy thing to say about a lot of games, like saying you just have to invest 30 hours into this JRPG and all of a sudden it's going to be the most mechanically rewarding thing you've ever seen. And like, honestly, I don't have time for that. And I think that's another place where this game actually shines, right? Like it can be fun, you know, two hours in, and it could be even more fun 200 hours in. Uh, <laughs> it's it's got a really long curve to getting, uh, you know, top-level fun. And I guess it, what I'm saying is it's got a high fun ceiling. It's harder to make a game that's fun for five minutes and then is still fun 60 minutes later, or it's fun 60 hours later. 
like getting the simpler systems down is easier but the problem is once the player knows their system where's the learning coming from what kind of have they already achieved mastery of the system in the game or are they still learning more and packing that depth into it can be a challenge as a game designer or even if they've learned the system inside and out can it still present interesting situations to you over and over again um the number of permutations available within a system is a huge factor in how long you're able to engage with it meaningfully Ah, also true also true well put and you know this game has that in spades in my opinion uh there's like i was saying 12 or 20 dimensions of things going on in any given match and it's uh, pretty easy to just sort of lose yourself in analyzing every side of a situation and trying to make the right turn or just plowing ahead blindly and seeing how things turn out. <laughs> Legitimate strategy sometimes. This is sort of one of those games that like, if you, if you played it long enough and you know it, it can be a bit of a meditation, you know, in the same way that people play uh, Dota after a thousand hours. Like, once you've internalized a game systems and you know what you're getting yourself into, uh, you can sort of just play it and, you know, go into autopilot mode and sort of zone out. It's it's a flow state game at that point. Civ does this. Here's, or Age of Empires does this. Um, some people, Skyrim does this. You know, it's just some games will hook you and not let go. Ah, yeah, I agree with that. All right, are we ready for some three-word reviews? All right, let's do it. Okay, my th- three-road review for this, and by the way, I think it's obvious from both of us, having played this for the last, what, 20, 18, 16 years, whenever we started picking this up, big thumbs up from both of us. I think mm-hmm. I can speak for Brian here. But my three-word review for this is Take Me Back. Because a lot of this game for me is almost... There's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up into it. We've been playing this for so long. Um, and we've been smack-talking each other for so long that, you know, we get into the groove, and we've got a thousand inside jokes just based off of this game. So playing a game with Brian, or with other people as well, although I've definitely played more with you than everyone else put together, um, it just takes me back to that simpler day where someone made lunch for you and did your laundry. Take me back to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well said. Uh, My three-word review is Sublime Strategy Synergy. Uh, This game, to me, is an airtight, perfect mix of engaging mechanics, you know, base building, RPG hero progression, army building, 4X mechanics. Uh, It makes this game synergize into a play experience that's easy to get into, but hard to put down, and, you know, hundreds of hours later, uh, you know, maybe thousands of hours, who knows at this point, it's still something that I find myself wanting to go back to, wanting to try out a new map that maybe I haven't played before, or hey, you know, I just found out there's some free community mods out there. Maybe I'll go try <laughs> those. Uh, all in all, as Josh said, I, I don't think we can recommend this game enough. You know, however much of that is tied up in nostalgia, certainly take that with a grain of salt, but um, I won't hesitate to recommend this game if you're a fan of strategy, fantasy, RPG mechanics. Or the year Uh, 1999. (laughs) That's right. Partying like it's 1999, playing Heroes 3. So, for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skirsha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care, and keep on gaming. 
All right, so Josh, you know, you played uh, many, many hours of this game in the course of your uh, Heroes 3 career. What faction do you prefer playing? Oh, I clearly prefer playing the towers, especially on a long game, because first of all, I'm a coward, and they have a lot of ranged units, so I can stay away from the enemy doing that. Second of all, they're a bunch of nerds, and I relate to that. Go nerds. How about you? Alright, so for me, my favorite town is Dungeon, uh, which is fitting because they are the polar opposite of Tower. Uh, Where Tower is the sky people, Dungeon is deep, deep underground. Uh, They're equally skilled in terms of magic, but I think they have superior martial capabilities. You know, I think there's not really a weak link. You say that, but I don't even remember what their tier one creature is right now. It's troglodytes, and they suck. But all tier one units <laughs> but suck. But besides <laughs> one-seventh of your lineup, there's no weak link. How often do you use that tier one unit anyway? Come on. <laughs> Come on.